Section 7 of the South American Republics, Volume 1, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1, Argentina, Chapter 5, The Beginnings of the Revolution. The Viceroyalty was a heterogeneous mass. The common subjection of its component parts to the Viceroy gave it a mere appearance of cohesion. The centering of the commercial currents in Buenos Aires did not furnish an organic connection sufficiently strong to united provinces and cities so widely separated and so different in social and industrial constitution. Upper Peru had been a mining region, and its white population was largely of a shifting character. The bulk of the population were Indians, and the inhabitants of Spanish blood were still taskmasters. Society was as yet in unstable equilibrium, and the different elements had not thoroughly coalesced. Paraguay was an isolated and almost self-sufficing commonwealth. It was essentially theocratic and averse to receiving external impressions. In Salta and Cordoba, the proportion of Indian blood was not so preponderant as in Bolivia and Paraguay. Agriculture was the economic basis. The Creoles and Indians had largely amalgamated politically and socially and though the people of spanish descent lived mostly in the towns they were in close and friendly contact with the civilized indians who labored in the irrigated valleys on the white pampas a new race of men had sprung into existence the gauchos whose business was the herding of cattle whose homes were their saddles and who were as impatient of control and as hard to deprive of personal liberty as arabs or parthians the proportion of white blood increased towards the coast. Buenos Aires was the boom town of the region and the time. Its population was recruited from among the most adventurous and enterprising Spaniards and Creoles. Lima and Mexico were centers of aristocracy and bureaucracy, while the social organization of Buenos Aires and its surrounding territory was completely democratic. All were equal, in fact. Neither nobles nor serfs existed. The viceroy was little more than a new officer, imposed by external authority, and having no real support in the country itself. It is not a mere coincidence that the three centers, Caracas, Buenos Aires, and Pernambuco, whence the revolutionary spirit spread over South America, should all have been democratic in social organization and far distant from the old colonial capitals. In Buenos Aires, the viceroy himself could not find a white coachman. An Argentine Creole would no more serve in a menial capacity than a North American pioneer, and a Creole hated a Spaniard very much as his contemporary, the Scotch-Irish settler of the Appalachians, hated an Englishman. Not even religion furnished a strong bond of union between the widely dispersed cities and provinces of the Viceroyalty. The priests had not been organized into a compact hierarchy. They had little class feeling. They lived the life of the Creoles and shared the same prejudices. Half the members of the first Congress after the Revolution were priests, but they pursued no distinctive policy of their own and offered no effective resistance to the growth of the power of the military chiefs. Commerce with Spain had been authorized, but with other nations it was still unlawful. The Cadiz monopolists still fought hard to preserve their privileges and to control the Atlantic trade as they had controlled the route by the Isthmus. Great Britain had enjoyed a monopoly of the traffic in Negroes during most of the colonial period, but in 1784 all foreign ships carrying slaves were allowed to enter, unload, and take a return cargo of the 
"products of the country." The Cadiz merchants contended that hides, then the principal article of export, were not products within the meaning of this law, and the Spanish courts decided in their favour. This absurd decision created a storm of opposition in Buenos Ayres, but even more unreasonable restrictions continued to be insisted upon. The proposition to allow the colonies to trade with one another was vehemently opposed by the people of Cadiz and their agents in Buenos Ayres. Meanwhile, England's maritime victories in the War of the French Revolution were sweeping Spanish commerce from the sea, and the people of the Plate saw themselves again about to be shut off from the sea unless permissions were granted to ship in foreign vessels. Dissatisfaction grew apace, and the prestige of the viceregal governments and the influence of resident Spaniards were seriously compromised. At the same time, there were fermenting among the intelligent and educated youth of the city the new ideas of the North American and French revolutions, liberty, the rights of men, representative government, and popular sovereignty. For generations, England had cast covetous eyes at South Africa and South America. Menaced with exclusion from Europe in her giant conflict with Napoleon, her statesmen determined to seize outside markets and possessions. The Cape was captured in 1805, and the next year came the turn of Argentina. June 25, 1806, Admiral Popham appeared in the estuary, and 1,500 troops, under the command of General Beresford, were disembarked a few miles below Buenos Aires. The Viceroy fled without making resistance, and on the 27th the British flag was run up on his official residence. At first the population appeared to acquiesce, but finally Liniere, a French officer in the Spanish employ, gathered together at Montevideo a thousand regulars and a small amount of artillery. The militia of Buenos Aires soon proved themselves anxious to rise against the heretic strangers. Liniere crossed the estuary and, advancing without opposition to the neighborhood of Buenos Aires, established a camp to which the patriotic inhabitants flocked. Within a short time he had armed an overwhelming number of the citizens. The scanty British garrison was shut up in the fort, and on the 12th of August the Argentines advanced. After some hard street fighting, the English were forced to surrender, and the flags which were captured that day are still exhibited in the city of Buenos Aires, with just pride as trophies of Argentine valor. The British expedition might have been successful had it been more numerous, or had it been promptly reinforced. If the capture of Montevideo had followed that of Buenos Aires, the Argentines would have had no base of operations, and their militia would have remained without ammunition and artillery stores. It is interesting to speculate what would have been the subsequent history of the temperate part of South America in such a case. It is possible that the plate would have become part of the British dominion, British immigration would have followed, and the plate might have become the greatest of British colonies. But the opportunity was quickly gone. The successes of 1806 so strongly aroused the spirit of national and race pride that thereafter the conquest of Argentina was a task too great for the small armies which in those days could be transported overseas. No sooner was Beresford expelled than the victors met in open cabildo, declared the cowardly viceroy suspended from office, and installed the royal audiencia in his place. A few months later the dreaded British reinforcement came. 
4,000 men disembarked in eastern Uruguay, and Montevideo was taken by assault. In Buenos Aires all was confusion, but the people were resolute to resist. Again an open cabildo assembled, and Liniere, the French officer under whose leadership the victory of last year had been won, was given supreme authority. Military enthusiasm spread among all classes, and the people were rapidly enrolled in volunteer regiments. When General Whitlock approached the city with several thousand regulars, the Argentines confidently marched out to meet him. In the open they stood no chance, and they were compelled to fly back to the shelter of their narrow streets and stone houses. On the 5th of July, 1807, the British troops, disdaining all precautions, marched into the city. Both sides of the narrow streets were lined with low, fireproof houses, whose flat roofs afforded admirable vantage ground. The Buenos Aires men were well supplied with muskets, and the women and boys rained down stones, bricks, and firebrands on the masses crowding the pavements below. The British could not retaliate on their enemies, but pushed stubbornly on towards the centre of the city, dropping by hundreds on the way. At the main square, in front of the fort, barricades had been thrown up, and there the English met a reception which flesh and blood could not endure. For two days the conflict raged, but finally the English general was obliged to give up and ask for terms. He had lost a fourth of his force, and was allowed to withdraw the remainder only on agreeing to evacuate Montevideo within two months. The political and commercial consequences of the English invasion were vastly important. The military power of the Argentine Creoles, hitherto unsuspected, stood revealed. Local pride had been stimulated, and at the same time the invasions gave a tremendous impulse to foreign commerce. A fleet of English merchantmen had followed the warships. Untrammeled commerce with the world at last became a fact. English manufactured goods flooded the market. Articles, until then beyond the reach of all but the wealthiest, now became cheap enough for the purses of the gauchos. Buenos Aires's trade was boomed by the sales of imported goods to the interior provinces. Creole jealousy of Spaniards rapidly became accentuated. From this time dates the general use of Goths, applied to Spaniards as a term of opprobrium, and of Argentines as a designation for the natives of the plate. Recognition could no longer be withheld from the men who had organized and commanded victorious troops, and henceforth the Creoles were in fact, as well as in law, eligible to offices of trust and profit. Even in the Buenos Aires Cabildo, though all the members were native Spaniards, Creole ideas predominated. Scarcely had the English retired from Montevideo when the course of events in Europe precipitated Spanish South America into confusion. Charles IV, the pusillanimous king of Spain, allied himself with Napoleon and aided the latter's aggressions against Portugal. The Portuguese monarch was driven to Brazil, the latter country thereby gaining complete commercial freedom and virtual political independence. This naturally suggested to the Argentines that they were entitled to the same privileges from Spain. Charles IV and Godoy, the accomplice of his wicked wife, who really governed in his name, were bitterly hated at home. Napoleon's troops swarmed over the country, and the monarchy itself was clearly tottering to its fall. Ferdinand, heir of Charles IV, conspired against his father and forced the latter to resign him his favor. The Spanish governor of Montevideo at once took the oath of allegiance to the new monarch, 
an act of insubordination to his tutelar superior, the Viceroy. The latter was the Frenchman Linier, who sympathised with the Creole party in desiring to wait and obtain concessions for the colony before recognising any of the various claimants. A dispute over the oath of allegiance to Ferdinand arose, which marked a definite rupture between the Creoles and the old line Spaniards, between those who regarded the special interests of the colony as paramount and those who wished at all hazards to maintain connection with the mother country. Charles's abdication was only the beginning of complications. He protested that it had been obtained from him by duress, and with Ferdinand he appealed to Napoleon as arbiter. The latter forced them both to renounce their claims in favour of his brother Joseph. Everyone in South America was agreed not to recognise Joseph Bonaparte as King of Spain, but there was wide diversity of opinion as to what affirmative action ought to be taken. Most regarded Ferdinand as the legitimate king, but he was in a French prison. Charles still claimed the throne, while provisional governments were formed in many cities of Spain to resist the enthroning of Joseph. A central junta at Seville claimed to be the depository of supreme executive power, pending Ferdinand's return, and to this junta the Spaniards of the plate gave their earnest and unhesitating allegiance. But the Creoles could not see their way clear to an unconditional recognition of such a self-constituted revolutionary body. Few believed that the Spanish patriots could withstand Napoleon's armies. If Spain had submitted to Joseph, the various parts of South America would have become independent without any serious struggle. The Goths in the plate were united in a definite policy, loyalty to the only Spanish government that was vindicating the nationality. The Creoles could agree on no affirmative programme, but all of them were determined that the Goths should not get the upper hand. The latter rose against Linier and tried to install a junta on the model of that of Seville. In view of the menacing attitudes of the Creole militia, the attempt was a failure, but the Frenchman did not have the resolution to maintain his advantage. The Seville junta finally named a viceroy, and though some of the resolute spirits among the militia leaders wished to resist, the majority shrank from open defiance of the highest existing Spanish authority. On the 30th of July, 1809, the new viceroy took possession. He gained popularity by his decree declaring free commerce with all the world, but his next act opened the eyes of the Creoles to the real effect of the re-establishment of the Spanish system. He sent a thousand men to Charcas, in the northern part of the Viceroyalty, to aid in the bloody suppression of a revolutionary movement undertaken by the Creole inhabitants of that city. The story that shortly came back of wholesale confiscations and executions widened the breach between the Spaniards and Creoles. Meanwhile, another crisis in Spanish home affairs was approaching. Napoleon's armies were sweeping the peninsula from end to end. In the early months of 1810, they overran Andalusia, the centre of resistance. It seemed as if the subjection of Spain was about to be completed. On the 18th of May, Viceroy Cisneros issued a proclamation frankly revealing the critical situation of the Spanish patriot and of the junta under whose commission he was acting. All classes of Buenos Aires immediately engaged in feverish discussions as to what should be done. The Spaniards wished to retain their privileged position. The Creoles were determined to put an end to discrimination against themselves. 
these were the real purposes of the two parties. The Spaniards did not especially favour absolutism, nor did the Creoles in general intend to renounce the sovereignty of Ferdinand should he ever escape from captivity. Among the Creoles were many liberals, mostly young and ardent men, whom study and travel had convinced of the necessity for racial reform and colonial autonomy. Among their leaders were Saavedra, the commander of the most efficient militia regiment, Vietes, at whose house the meetings of the conspirators were held, Manuel Belgrano, afterwards the brains and right arm of the movement, and two eloquent young leaders, Castell and Paso. The active spirits conspired to depose the viceroy, confident that the measure would be popular amongst all classes of Creoles. On the 22nd of May, a committee of popular chiefs waited on him to demand his resignation. Resistance was futile, for he could not rely on the troops. They were Creoles, and proud of the fact that Argentines had expelled the British. The office-holders tried to arrange a compromise by which an open cabildo should elect the ex-viceroy president of a new governing junta. The populace and the militia would not submit, and on the 25th of May, now celebrated as the anniversary of the establishment of Argentine liberty, a great armed assembly met in the plaza. The Creole badge was blue and white, then adopted as the Argentine colors. The proceedings were frankly revolutionary. A junta was named from among the Creole leaders, and the Buenos Aires Cabildo obediently proclaimed this body the supreme authority of the viceroyalty. There was no pretense of consulting the other provinces. Spanish constitutional law provided no machinery through which they could be heard, and the capital assumed, as a matter of course, the right of governing the dependencies. The events of the 25th of May were not intended to sever relations between Spain and Buenos Aires. The acts of the new government ran in the name of Ferdinand VII, King of Castile and Leon. An able and ambitious coterie of young men came to the front, whose achievements in war, administration, and diplomacy were to change the face of South America. In the neighboring cities there were no spontaneous uprisings against the Spanish governors, but the Buenos Aires patriots lost no time in sending out armies to spread their liberal and anti-Spanish doctrines. The first movement was towards the old university town of Cordoba. Here ex-Viceroy Linier had managed to get a few troops together, but not enough to make effective resistance. At the first encounter they were all captured, and the Buenos Aires Junta immediately ordered the execution of the captured officers and of the anti-Creole chiefs. This barbarous act is a fair sample of the horrible bloodthirstiness of the war between Creoles and Spanish sympathizers. As a rule, both sides slew their prisoners, and the combats were, therefore, incredibly bloody for the numbers engaged. The Buenos Aires army continued its triumphal march through the provinces of Cordoba and Salta up to the Bolivian mountains. The Creole townspeople reorganized the municipal governments on an anti-Spanish basis, and the army increased like a rolling snowball. Not until it had reached the highlands of Bolivia was serious resistance encountered. On the 7th of November the patriots gained the Battle of Suipacha. The Creoles of Bolivia rose, and the Buenos Aires penetrated rapidly as far as the boundaries of the Viceroyalty. Meanwhile, Manuel Belgrano had led a small expedition to Paraguay. However, the inhabitants of that isolated region showed no disposition to join the Buenos Aires in their revolutionary movement. 
the Spanish governor allowed Belgrano to advance nearly to Asuncion, but there his little army was overpowered and forced to surrender on honourable terms. Montevideo's capture seemed essential to the safety of Buenos Aires itself. Spanish ships, under the orders of its governor, blockaded the river and constantly menaced an attack on the Patriot capital. Early in 1811, Artigas, with a band of gauchos from Entre Rios, crossed the Uruguay and overran the country up to the walls of the fortress, defeating the Spaniards in the Battle of Piedras. Reinforcements came from Buenos Aires, and a siege of Montevideo was begun. At this juncture, news came of a great disaster in the north. The Argentines had at first been joined by Bolivian patriots, but the latter were jealous, and the former, bred on the plains, could not well endure the high altitude, suffering in health and efficiency. The Viceroy of Peru rapidly recruited a considerable army among the sturdy and obedient Indians of the high Peruvian plateau. On the 20th of June, 1811, the Patriot Army was attacked at Waki, near the southern end of Lake Titicaca, and was virtually annihilated. Bolivia was lost to the Patriots, and Spanish authority was re-established as far south as the Argentine plains. This great defeat completely changed the attitude of affairs. The Argentines evacuated Uruguay, and the Spanish colonial authorities everywhere took the offensive. The heroic resistance which the Spanish people were now making to the army of Napoleon's marshals encouraged the viceroy and governor to believe that Ferdinand would soon again be seated on the throne of his fathers. Spanish ships dominated the delta of the Paraná, and the Spanish troops from Montevideo descended at pleasure on the banks of the Plate or its tributaries. The Spanish residents at Buenos Aires plotted against the Junta, but their conspiracy was betrayed, and in the middle of 1812 their chiefs, to the number of 38, mostly wealthy merchants, were arrested and garroted. The situation of the revolutionary government was so desperate that it is not hard to understand why the Junta ruthlessly repressed all signs of disaffection. Victorious Spanish armies threatened them from both Bolivia and Montevideo, and fire in their air would have been fatal. In this crisis of their fate, Manuel Belgrano, the great leader of the Buenos Aires Creoles, came to the front. A native of the city, he had been educated in Spain, where he had imbibed liberal principles. On his return, he threw himself with all the prestige of his learning, talents, and wealth on the side of the Creoles. His faith in the triumph of liberal principles was unalterable, and he was a more radical advocate of independence than most of his associates. Though without military training, and though his expeditions in Paraguay and Uruguay had not been successful, his prestige and his unwavering confidence in the patriot cause pointed him out as naturally the fittest leader. Again he was entrusted with the command, and went north to Tucuman, where the disheartened fragments of all patriot army were fearfully waiting for the descent of the victorious Spaniards. The inhabitants of Jujuy and Salta had been driven from their homes, and for the first time gaucho horsemen appeared as the principal element of the Argentine army. The junta ordered Belgrano to retire, so as to protect Buenos Aires, but he disobeyed and stuck to Tucuman and let the Spaniards get between him and the capital. With the country up in arms and the exasperated gauchos harassing his march, the Spanish general did not dare leave Belgrano's army behind him. 
The Spanish army turned back to Tucuman to finish with the mass of militia there before resuming its march to the capital. To the surprise of South America, the result was a decisive Patriot victory. The Gaucho cavalry, armed with knives and bolos, mounted on fleet little horses, carrying no baggage, and living on the cattle they killed at the end of each day's march, followed the fleeing Spaniards up into the mountains and inflicted enormous losses. This victory gave the Argentines, for another year, assurance against invasion by land, and Buenos Aires remained a focus whence anti-Spanish influence could spread over the rest of South America. The Patriots again invaded Uruguay, shut up the Spaniards within the walls of Montevideo, and prepared once more to carry the war into Bolivia. All this while the government at Buenos Aires was involved in internal quarrels. The first junta soon expelled its fiercest, strongest, and most active spirit, Moreno, who seemed to have been the only man of the period who foresaw the necessity of establishing a federative form of government. With the disaster of Waki, the necessity for a more compact executive became urgent. A triumvirate assumed the direction of affairs. Its policy was at once despotic and feeble, and satisfied neither federalists, advanced liberals, nor the military element. The latter was becoming daily more predominant. A radical republican society called the Lautaro, composed largely of young officers, was organized and became virtually a ruling oligarchy. San Martin and Alvear arrived from Europe, and the prestige which they had acquired on European battlefields at once secured for them prominent positions. When the news of the victory of Tucuman reached the city, the military classes revolted, deposed the old triumvirate, and installed a new one. This revolution marked the final triumph of the sentiment of independence. The new government was active in every sense of the word. Belgrano was reinforced. San Martin was encouraged in his chosen work of forming the nucleus of a disciplined army fit for offensive warfare. The worn-out pretense of employing Ferdinand's name on public documents was dropped. The Inquisition, the use of torture, and the titles of nobility were abolished. The Argentine Revolution had finally assumed a military and republican character. Independence was clearly henceforth its end and purpose. End of section 7